this is funny because you screwed up now, Aline. You made I a did. mistake. I did. It's not hygge. Well, it's funny because it's a Danish thing. No, it's Swedish. No. <laughs> it's Danish. <laughs> it's Danish. <laughs> so I, I wouldn't know, actually. I've heard that they do that in Denmark, but I honestly don't really know what it is. Welcome to Murgatroyd. <laughs> Okay, so today I'm here with Aline, and it's a little bit interesting today because I was somewhat, I felt tricked into doing this. I don't know if what you say, Aline. <laughs> yes, you were tricked into doing this. <laughs> right. And this is on the back of me interviewing you as being very excited to have you on as a co-host for the podcast. And then I guess you thought it was a brilliant idea to then do the reverse. And so I somewhat reluctantly agreed, but I think it's going to be a fun conversation. So I think it's going to be interesting to see, I guess, me just leaving things to you. And I'll take a step back and let you yeah. handle the rest. No, you know, it's a risky move, but uh, I agree it is also brilliant. And uh, I think it's it's only fair for our listeners to to get to know you too. So uh, one thing I always say, if you're going to put other people in the hot seat, you have to be able to <laughs> sit there yourself. <laughs> um, but honestly, if we were in one of those cars that has fancy seat warmers, this is it's probably on the the, the medium to low setting of, of the hot seat. So you're going to be just fine. Don't worry. Right. Okay. Well, if you <laughs> say so, and I would be happy if you really bring it and putting, putting me in the hot seat. I don't mind that per se. I think it's, it should be fun. All right. Well, then here we go. Our, our first hard-hitting question, Sam or Samuel? So in Sweden, Samuel, and then oh. anywhere else, usually Sam. I'm way off. <laughs> it's not like it's not like before someone gets to know you, they have to call you Samuel, and then once you're close friends, they can they can go by Sam. No, no, I couldn't care less, honestly, with that thing. <laughs> okay, great. Well, uh, we'll go with that then. Um, all right. So uh, now for a softball, I told you I would keep it easy. What is the meaning of life? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so a good good softball. And um, yeah, I guess we talked a little bit about that last time, right? But um, so meaning of life, the first thing that actually comes to mind for me, I don't know if you read the book Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut. You know, it's been so long. <laughs> it's one of those that, that uh, I would need a refresher. <laughs> right. So the general gist here is that in the story, there's these two people who decides it's a brilliant idea to buy an island where people live and kind of make this island into some form of a utopia. And in doing so, they realize that it's actually really hard to do that through just governance and, and a political system. And so they realize that what's missing is a religion to get <laughs> people really kind of high in well-being and so on. So right, one right. of them changes his name to Bokonan and kind of starts from the forest sending texts to the people. And he writes this this book of Bokonan, which is kind of the religious scriptures. And <laughs> I guess what I think about this is because the first one is this text on like how the world came to be. And it says that God created earth. And then once he's created earth, God created all the living creatures, including uh, human. And um, 
Once created, human looked up and kind of blinked and asked, what's the meaning of all of this to, to God? Mm-hmm. And then God says, does everything has to have a meaning? <laughs> Only if you're human. <laughs> right. And a human says, certainly, surely it must have. Then I leave it to you to think of one meaning for all of this, says God, and then leaves. Uh-huh. And so that's kind of the setup in terms of how, how the book is, is set up. So I really like that idea of <laughs> meaning very much being something that uh, it's, it's upon ourselves to kind of figure out. It's not really something very objective. In many ways, it comes back to almost this absurd question or answer. Like in another book, you will hear uh, being like 42 from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Right, of course. <laughs> That's the cop-out answer. <laughs> I know. Ideas 42, obviously. If you, people, people didn't know, that's where yeah. the 32 comes yeah. from. So even though it's a little bit arrogant to try to answer that question, what I would do if I would really do my best, I would say that the real meaning of life is to survive. But <laughs> we've become <laughs> so good Darwinian. at That's very Darwinian. I know, I know. It is in some ways. But I feel like that's something you would assume for all organisms that that's kind of the case. And so why should it be different for, for us? And so then you look at, okay, what if you can assume that maybe we have become so good at that preliminary meaning so that we feel like we have to come up with another meaning. And I feel like that's kind of the case. And so when coming up with that kind of second meaning, what I feel like is important is to feel like you have a meaningful life. That's really mm-hmm. where a lot of this comes from and have this perception of a meaningful life. And I feel like that comes from these three sources. And maybe the people in the self-determination theory world will really like me saying this because it's kind of ties in a little bit to that. But I would say one is the idea of it's really important to build self-awareness and train kind of acceptance and maybe also exercising some loving and kindness towards oneself. And so it goes back to this idea that it's, it's really hard to have a good relationship if the two people don't like themselves, like in terms of, individually themselves. It's very hard to have a good relationship if you don't like yourself and can manage yourself and your emotions and that kind of stuff. Yeah. The Buddhist community would also be very proud of your answer. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Probably the Stoic as well in some ways. <laughs> but um, then I think second is, you know, selflessly investing in meaningful relationships. So I think that's, that's such a crucial thing for just having that sense of a meaningful life. It's so much easier to have that feeling if you spend your life having meaningful conversation with people you like and and like you. But a lot of that comes from selflessly investing in others rather than trying to get something for yourself. And um, and lastly, doing work that uh, you enjoy and serves a bigger purpose than maybe cashing checks. So that's kind of my current hypothesis for kind of what, what makes for a meaningful life. I love it. Yeah. No, it's it's all about the perception and definitely... I love your point about humans just being programmed to see meaning where there isn't any and and finding it and sort of creating it. That's a very that's a very homo sapien thing to, thing to do. Cool. So now let's talk about your life specifically. Can you uh, give us some background, sort of share with our listeners your path, how you got started in behavioral design and basically how you got from there to where you are now? Sure. So born and raised in Sweden, but decided to jump on a plane and go to study in Australia after having finished my kind of basic studies in Sweden. And uh, 
didn't know much more than Crocodile Dundee at that point. So I didn't know <laughs> what to expect. Had seen that movie, but uh, sadly, there was very few people like that in Australia. Um, that is sad. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I did have a really good time there. And I was studying at University of New South Wales in Sydney and was going to study economics. And the goal was to actually work more towards business and entrepreneurship in the long run and th- see how economics can be used there. But I had this Norwegian professor who, um, you could say in some ways, like smuggled me books in behavioral economics. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was a little, a little bit like that because I came into his office. I was doing some research work for him. And he just kind of like gave me this book. So like, hey, you should really read this. And it's like, it felt almost a little bit secretive because you were not supposed to maybe look at that stuff. That's so funny. I'm just imagining a whole behavioral economics underground. (laughs) Yes, yes. Maybe that was just just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. And um, I was given all of the kind of the books that see now as kind of the classics in some ways. And um, for me, that was kind of a very much of an enlightening first step into the field because I... I started to have that experience of looking at the world and myself in the world very differently and seeing the nuances that maybe I didn't see before. And it was kind of this thing where you start to see something and you want to kind of like scratch it all to figure out all of it. Like you want to, you know, see what's really behind all of it. And so mm-hmm. I think that was the very much the first step. And um, then the second part to that was, I guess this ties in a little bit again to Crocodile Dundee. If you've seen the movie, he has this like really big knife, uh, almost like a machete. And because <laughs> my second part there was to figure out, okay, this sounds really fascinating. I would love to in some way somehow work with, you know, putting these insights of behavioral science and economics to practice. But when I looked around, it wasn't really clear for me how, how to get there. And so what I was going to say is that I was feeling like I was coming into this jungle with a machete and like was trying to like <laughs> make my way through. <laughs> forging the path. Yeah, forging the path. Because if I was looking to my friends who was taking maybe accounting degrees or whatever, they had that path completely laid out. They know exactly step one, two, three, and like till 50, if it's like. But for me, I didn't really have as clear a path. So I spend a lot of time connecting with people, uh, trying to figure out what was done in the US, uh, what were people doing in the UK, and that kind of stuff. And slowly but surely, I was kind of finding my feet. And um, eventually, after having done some collaboration work and starting to get into it in Australia and in the US, I eventually came back to Sweden. Felt like it was a very fun thing to see if I can help grow the field and build the field here. And uh, was very fortunate to very yeah randomly partner up with three amazing people that had just started the first behavioral consultancy. And I kind of joined them as part of kind of that process of, of founding and, and building the field in, in Sweden and spent, yeah, a lot of uh, hard years of trying to almost from scratch <laughs> build the field and build interest and build a uh, demand in some ways as well for the field in Sweden. And um, feeling like an imposter in a certain extent as well. Um, Does that ever change, though? <laughs> I don't know. It's it's definitely come much better. I feel like it's definitely come much better. But I remember that experiencing of a while at the same time building the field in Sweden and really trying to be almost a the lead leader or or part of the lead in establishing this. Not at the same time feeling like I knew hundred percent that I could represent it 
as well as I wanted to, right? right? And especially with our field that's so wide and so broad and so messy, it's it's very hard to feel like you know really all what there is to know in this field, right? So, yeah, that was definitely a challenge in in, in some ways. But um, but yeah, I feel like that's got, gotten better, and uh, I've been very fortunate to use. I guess, led by this fascination of putting theory to practice, being able to work in everything from startups to helping different governments around the world and different large organizations to think about how they can use behavioral design for good. And um, I don't know if that's answered your question, but that was kind yeah, of... Yeah, uh, absolutely. What are, you, what are you working on now that you're really excited about? So one thing that I am really excited about is a project that... I can describe it. I can't say the name of because it's a little bit secret right now. Oh. But it's... Project Crocodile Dundee. Exactly. We can call it that. It's likely the biggest ever cohort study of sort ever. Um, I said ever twice there. And I think it's... It's, 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 <laughs> it's, a, it's really a good emphasize it. <laughs> yeah, because it's about... The goal is to get 5 million people to get involved to in some way support research on preventing and detecting serious diseases and deadly diseases. And so, so yeah, it's a really big project and um, it's going to take some time to, to maybe get those 5 million people. But um, that's one product that I'm working on right now. That's very exciting. Uh, hopefully I can share more in a couple of months on that one. Awesome. And, and then um, another one that's very exciting is that I've built this <laughs> platform for uh, people that are coaches that wants to learn behavioral science, which is Cohabit Coach Pro, uh, with pretty much the idea that I'm trying to see how behavioral science can be leveraged in different ways. And so the people that are called like catalysts for using behavioral science, how they can be given the tools that they need. And I feel like coaches are sometimes the least appreciated people in the world because they have so much expectation on them, whether that's a PT or a nutritionist or whatever type of kind of slash coaching role you have. Usually today they're treated as they're supposed to be a psychologist, they're supposed to be the everything <laughs> for these <Yeah>. people, <laughs> while they have barely given any training beyond some basic, usually if they're a personal trainer, some very basic training to how people perform in the gym, but no training at all and help people perform outside of the gym or get to the gym or build a habit of going to the gym and that kind of stuff. You almost have to be a psychologist also to be, to be a good coach. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's probably two, two exciting products. That's great. So it's like a trainer model or a coach, the coacher model. Yeah. And I guess that's why I really love my job because it's, I'm able to work on these quite different challenges in, in, you know, in, simultaneously. Right. One very much a public health challenge, and then one a very different type of challenge. Yeah, interesting. Still putting behavioral science practice. Yeah, so so thinking back at your path and how you've gotten from you know A to B and well, let's say A to Z and all the other letters in between and all the squiggles that have <laughs> that have taken you to to where you are now. Is there anything that you would change about any of those paths that you took along the way, or uh, do you do you think about it as you know? Things everything sort of went as planned, or maybe it didn't go as planned, but but it all worked out quite all right. Well, I will definitely say that's the case. I think I'm happy that I made it here. 
I would say one of the things that I underestimated was being part of running a behavioral consultancy. I think it's very difficult, especially in the form that we had it. It was in very, very much in a sense, it was a startup. You know, we were a small group of people trying to get people to buy our idea that behavioral science could be useful and that behavioral science can be a tool for, for a lot of different challenges. And um, that was super challenging. And I'm mm -hmm. not sure if it would change much with that per se, but, and maybe that was part of what's helped it, that I came in with more of this naive idea that it was going to be more only fun and easy kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, if I had a little hair before then, I feel like I lost a lot of it during that time. <laughs> Oh man. <laughs> and and now look at you. <laughs> I know. It's uh yeah. Oh dear. It's it's one of those things. So so yeah, I think that's probably something that I, I would maybe if I would do that again, I'm not sure. You know, in terms of trying to start something from scratch that way. It's it's a very tough thing. Yeah. Yeah, but but I'm sure it made you stronger in, in the process and having to <laughs> overcome all of those challenges along the way. <laughs> Still standing, so yeah. <laughs> you're still you're still here. You haven't given up. Uh, you haven't you haven't changed your mind and become an accountant. So I say I take that as a <laughs> that's a it's a good move. Uh, yes. Um, so one thing that you didn't even mention in your your path towards now is a a wonderful newsletter that you put together every week, Habit Weekly. This is a popular, a very popular newsletter that essentially curates you know, everything that's going on in behavioral design, and I want to ask you about it because I'm so impressed by your ability to consistently put this out every week. Uh, I don't even want to talk about the newsletter itself. I want to talk about how you do it. Um, and honestly, I have some experience myself attempting a newsletter at the at the beginning of lockdown. I put together a, uh, a little sort of family and friends digest. I called it the quarantine weekly. And it was things like what I'm cooking or like plants around <laughs> plants in my yard or, or things that I was growing other sorts of wholesome news and, you know, would collect, collect other people's stories and so on. Um, and I found that it was a ton of fun at first. It was, you know, like such a blast to put together, um, especially, you know, in the midst of the, the pandemic starting. And then after, I think I got about 10 weeks into it and I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't find the motivation to, uh, like, you know, keep taking pictures of my plants, <laughs> like, you know, just like, you know, finding all the, all the, uh, the pie photos. So I'm, I'm curious how, uh, how you stay motivated and continue to do that, um, essentially volunteering your time, um, so consistently and whether it gets old, are you exhausted? Is it still as exciting as it was on day one? Yeah, I would say, um, it's not as exciting as it was day one. I still remember the feeling of having 20 people on the mailing list and pressing send for the first time. <laughs> that was that was very, very exciting and nerve-wracking nerve and yeah, all of those things. And I would say what's really helped me was, first of all, I had this very clear commitment to myself that I didn't expect this to be something that I would understand straight away if it was a good idea. And so I said, well, I'm going to do this for one year. And then after one year, I can decide if this is a good idea or not. Either by that point, probably I've also get a little bit of sense of, 
is this needed? Is this people actually some, something that people want or need in, in their lives? And do I create value in this way? And so that was a good start uh, for sure. And then I think overall, it's probably a little different, right? So I don't know how your, you know, the people on your list, I don't know who it was. It was your grandma or... <laughs> yeah, definitely yeah. my grandma. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know how you feel about disappointing her or how upset she would be or, you know, that kind of stuff. Oh, dear. <laughs> because one of the things that I definitely, you know, if I'm honest, it's, it's a very clear social commitment in that I do feel like I have this almost responsibility for the people on the list to provide them with value at this point. And I do feel a kind of a responsibility to, to live up to that idea of, of that you have signed up for something, I've promised something, and I'm going to deliver it. And so that's, I think, a very clear thing of having first, I guess, was only like 20 people that I could disappoint. But then with the list growing, I, I definitely feel like it's very hard for me now to have you know, thousands of people and then knowing that if I, if I don't send it something out, I don't know if people, it, obviously it's probably putting a little bit too much on my shoulders to say that people will actually notice that much. I'm not, I'm not sure that people will be like, Oh my God, where is this newsletter? But, uh, <laughs> but I do, I do feel that responsibility very clearly. And even, I don't know if I've actually talked about this very much before quote unquote publicly, but I had, Last year, a very difficult period where I was in kind of a traffic accident and spent, yeah, almost four months in kind of recovery in different ways. Oh, wow. And um, I actually injured both of my wrists. And so a true story was that the, the one thing that kind of I was able to consistently still do was the newsletter. Wait, how are you typing without your wrists? That seems like the one thing you can't do. So, so there's actually three, four issues in June of last year, or I think maybe May, June of last year, that um, actually my mom, my mom typed them. Wow, that is love. That is love. Yeah, because wow. it was a, it was a very challenging time. So actually, I went back to stay with my my family, and and she was always supportive, and she's very supportive then. And so, yeah, she she was actually the one who who helped me. Um, with the newsletter during that time. So so credit to her as well and, and yeah. anyone else who's helped me during this. I think you should be co-signing her name at the end of each, <laughs> each newsletter. <laughs> the, the funny thing is that actually she is also a very avid follower of newsletter and awesome. she would message me, you know, having no previous experience of behavioral science or anything like that beforehand, uh, telling me that, you know, mostly she loves when I have a comic or something, obviously. Uh-huh. <laughs> so she, she tells me if it's a good comic and that kind of stuff. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really great to have, you know, talking about meaningful uh, relationships and so on. It's obviously makes a big difference when you have that support system. Yeah. That's wonderful. I'm going to totally switch gears now. Um, I know that you're, uh, you're a big fan of science fiction. You've read much of the literature and, and really a big reader and consumer of all things in general. So I want to sort of double tap on sci-fi and, and let me know what you think makes a good science fiction book. What are the elements of, of like really good sci-fi? This is my favorite question ever. I can speak <laughs> about this for a long time. So uh, yeah, I would say 
one thing that if I would say the criteria for a good sci-fi book is character development with sci-fi elements kind of sprinkled on top. So what we see in most sci-fi books is that kind of overreliance in using fancy tech or metaphysics or some cool random time machines and that kind of stuff, and then having that carry the plot or carry the story forward. Uh, but a really good sci-fi book is good without the sci-fi elements in some ways. So that's kind of the test. If you remove the time traveling, if you remove the whatever it is, parallel, parallel universes, is it yeah. still a good book? Because <laughs> then you, what you pretty much get is that you get a good book plus what I hope when I read a good sci-fi book is that I think about the world that is with a different kind of variable in play, you know? What if the world had this thing going on? Or like, what if it was this thing? And I feel like that's really, for me, it's it's the most fun thought experiment in many ways to think about, you know, how the world would look differently with certain things in play. And um, yeah, so that's what I get from really good sci-fi books. Yeah, cool. All the all those counterfactuals. What if what if everything uh, worked differently? I love that. And I, as I was thinking about science fiction in general, I was thinking, you know. Of course, I'm not an uh, an expert or or even really that familiar with the genre, but uh, I was wondering why isn't there any why isn't there a B sci-fi, you know, <laughs> behavioral science fiction, um, or maybe there is and I just haven't discovered it. It seems like something that someone should invent if it's not already out there, there or, or perhaps it, perhaps it is, and I just it, it isn't labeled. Isn't that the Malcolm Gladwell books? <laughs> <laughs> Come on! <laughs> joking, joking. I like, I like, I like this book. Uh, but uh, he's obviously going to hear this. <laughs> yes, yes. Funny enough, there are some books that are actually some sort of behavioral sci-fi books. So I don't know. You would probably categorize Walden Two by B. F. Skinner as um, some form of sci-fi. As B. Sci-fi. Yeah. Uh huh. I don't know. Have you read that book actually? I have. Or do you know about it? Okay, I actually read that book. It's quite of a not the most fun book. <laughs> it's pretty much what you imagine it to be, you know, if uh, if if you have a world that's controlled by these kind of external things in some way. Yeah, just behaviorists yeah. taking over everything. Yeah, but in a kind of a utopian... <laughs> Literally everything controlled by stimulus response. Like, it's like a little bit hippie meets <laughs> operant conditioning. That's kind of the book book thing. And um, so that's a little bit failed. And I think uh, there's also The Age of M in some ways by Robin Hansen, which is in some ways, an attempt to think about, you know, putting behavioral really into the sci-fi world. Um, again, maybe not the best book per se. Hmm. So I think the problem in general is that what we know also is good people in the field of behavioral science maybe are not the best people at writing uh, fiction. Interesting. Yeah. Need more character development. Even with some of the popular behavioral science book or popular psychology books, there's no coincidence that most of them are maybe not written by, you know, leading researchers or, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. Like a lot of it is the likes of, I don't know, I'm thinking about Duhigg or um, the, all of that, all the different people that are writing behavioral science books that are more like yeah. journalists. James and Clear. James Clear, exactly. <laughs> Dan exactly. Pink, Rory Sutherland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all those uh, <laughs> sort of the, the whole class of dudes who write books about other people's research. <laughs> 100%, 100%. I'm familiar. 
Yeah. So I think that's the problem in some ways. So I would love to see more elements. I think there are some some books that are kind of could still label themselves as somewhat behavioral science sci- or behavioral sci-fi books. So you have the Foundation series by Asimov. Familiar? Uh, with that? I have not read them, but yes, it's a familiar. So pretty much there, it's pretty cool in the sense that he imagines a world where there's this one behavioral scientist who's become so good at behavioral science that he can predict behavior not only you know today but in hundreds of years into the future. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, okay. So that kind of place with like the uber behavioral scientists. Then you have authors like uh, Ted Chiang, who writes short form fiction and science fiction with a lot of his stories are around kind of behavioral components. He has the short story that became the movie Arrival, which uh-huh. right. touches upon, I guess, like behavioral, ling- like behavioral linguistics and that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. It's like linguistics, yeah. Then you have the classics, like I would say 1984, Animal Farm, Brave New World. They're very much looking into oh, yeah. some, like... Are those you know, sci-fi, I guess? Yeah, yeah, I would say so, okay. yeah. Um, and then, like dystopian, dystopian sci-fi, you would probably categorize them. And then you also, like, one of my favorite books that is quite underrated is by, I think it's Jose Samarago. It's called Blindness. And oh, um, it's a really book. good book. Uh, you, yeah. you read it as well? I have, yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like that in so many ways also is in what I see as, like, the importance of good, like, qualitative research yeah, in the sense that absolutely, I never was able to understand how it was to be blind in the same way as having read that book. That no pun intended, like open my eyes to, to <laughs> what, that, what that means. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and and I think that's an amazing book in in you know playing around with with some of those things. Like what if, you know, what if this happens? Like how would people react? And then I don't know, maybe like Stranger in a Strange Land is another book like that where it's it's a little bit you know, introducing a stranger to the world and seeing the world through that stranger. And so seeing human behavior from someone else's point of view. So I think that's probably indirectly a little bit behavioral science, but I would love if there was this kind of fun, you know, if, if Thaler and let's say some Samarago or, you know, Thaler and Ted Chiang or some of these people, you know, would, would write books together. I think that would be amazing. Wow, that would be such an interesting collaboration. <laughs> have, do you know if Dan Dan has any plans on that? Yeah, yeah, he's he's definitely gotten in, into fiction. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah, you could call it science fiction. Sort of. He's started writing some. I'm not sure if this is a secret, but um, <laughs> now everyone will know. He started uh, writing some sort of evil behavioral scientist fiction of you know getting carried carried away by your hypotheses and such. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't think there's any timeline for that to actually come out. It's more of a fun side project, but yeah, I think he's, he's very well suited to, to write the dystopian B sci-fi <laughs> to start that genre. Maybe. Yeah. I would love that. I would really love that. I think it's, especially with his work on honesty and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's really fun if, if it were able to be told through sci-fi book, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So there's a lot of problems in the world. Uh, some of those problems are behavioral problems. If you think about, you know, the Venn diagram of all the problems, behavioral problems are some subset of that, things that require behavior change, essentially. What kind of problem, or maybe even a specific problem, whatever you, whatever, you know, pops into your mind, is the most difficult or, or the most resistant to intervention? Basically, what's the hardest behavioral problem to solve? 
So you were saying before that you were going to give me softballs. I'm still waiting for the softballs. I guess the... <laughs> Sam or Samuel, come on. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Okay, okay. So great question. For me, I would probably say climate change or sustainability would probably yeah. be the, the hardest problem. Because it takes, in some ways, what I say is all of the boxes for what makes a hard behavior problem. And for me, it was like a huge realization in terms of what are hard problems to solve was just thinking about direct and delayed consequences in a more deeper way. And so that, well, we know that we're very much responding to immediate things happening. So if we do something and it immediately feels good, we'd like to do it again. And if we do something and immediately feels bad, we're likely to avoid it. And what I kind of noticed, if you looked at like most of the big problems that we're facing, is that looking at the delayed versus direct consequences, the setup is usually that the direct consequence is kind of a negative one, and the delayed consequence is a positive one. Mm -hmm. So in other words, it's a little bit painful in the short term to create some long-term things that are good. And of all things, <laughs> that is especially true for climate change, right? And most of the things we need to do to support, you know, a healthier planet and um, curb um, carbon emissions is to do less of the things we want to do in some ways, especially on a kind of a individual level. And even on um, looking at organizational level, there's a lot of incentives in play that that makes that a more costly thing to do in the short term. And right. so that goes with all things from the kind of the hamburger being, you know, something very tasty to eat right now, but we have long-term negative consequences. We're not really built to really take in those long-term consequences in an effective way. So the further they are, the harder it's going to be for us to grasp them. And so it's hard enough for our health or for getting people to stop smoking. You know, that's really hard. But it's then almost becomes feels like next to impossible in some ways <laughs> to really get people to have the same grasp of the consequences that is... Uh, with climate change. And what's fascinating, I think, today is seeing more and more of those things coming in play when you see the direct consequences this year. You know, there's been obviously many places and in the last couple of years, there's been more and more hurricanes, there's more and more and more fires, there's been warmer summers, colder winters, like all of this kind of stuff that's kind of a sign of maybe what's to come. And it's still surprising that still that's not really been a super strong thing that really switched the dial and how people think about it on a bigger scale. You have, I'm very proud of Greta and, and that movement. It's really cool to see mm -hmm. what she's done. Um, I was actually on my way to work when I first started seeing her sitting there, uh, like here in Stockholm. And so it's fun to see how, how, how big that became. But yeah. even with that movement, it's obviously very limited. It's quite small in the scheme of things. So yeah, I maybe that's a long answer, but I think um, climate change is the one. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And even to your point of the delayed consequence, uh, if you think about the the upside or you know the the positive impact that you'll see, you don't really see it's it's really like a lack of a downside, which is, which is even less motivating than mm. a delayed 
upside, even, you know, if, if you go back to your example of exercise or, or eating healthy, like there are all sorts of, you know, positive things that you'll experience in the long run from eating healthy. But with climate change, if you, you know, you live sustainably and, you know, go through all the, all the pain of changing your light bulbs and so on, you know, it's, it's just a, a lack of a downside that you'll see. And of course, it's just a drop in the bucket. You're, you're only impacting what you yourself personally can impact. Whereas with exercise and so on, you'll actually see the benefits of that personally. Whereas with climate change, you know, if everyone else doesn't get on the bandwagon, <laughs> it doesn't matter what you do. Um, That's so true. So, and actually, one one more thing that I think also adds more to this is the, um, the behavioral challenge from that, the intuition from people who wants to actually deal with this, like the people who are really caring about climate change. Sadly, their impulse is to do really ineffective things from a behavioral perspective, to like shame and to fear people into doing behavior, which yeah. can often backfire and can lead to, you know, other, other, other negative spirals and, and denial or like, you know, so I think that's also a, a challenge in itself, like almost like a meta challenge with it, that the people who's trying to lead the change are maybe using really bad tactics for it as well uh, in some ways, or at least that's in, the intuitive thing is to use tactics like fear or you know, showing this, you know, bad things happening and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I see that with a lot of activism where I I can say, oh, yeah, I really agree with your cause, but the way that you're going about it is so wrong and it's not going to work. <laughs> I just wish that like, exactly. you had a behavioral scientist by your side. It's very unfortunate. All right, I have one last really hard question and then we're going to do mm-hmm. um, something really fun, which I know you already know about called underrated, overrated, but but we're going to have to go over, get over this hurdle in, in order to get there. And this is a sort of a thought experiment that I, uh, that I came up with, which is you know, just thinking about how humans are programmed in general and uh, you know, how a lot of our tendencies, our heuristics and our biases are really, you could argue, and some people do, that they're there for a reason, that they they trip us up sometimes, but by and large, they help us function on a daily basis. There's really a sort of purpose for them. They make life more efficient and more manageable and so on. But maybe that's not true of every uh, every human tendency. So I'm curious if you think there's anything that that really should go in terms of how humans are programmed. Are there any sort of vestigial features of the brain that's such an amazing question. I love that I know, question. it's a hard one. <laughs> no, but I really, I really like it, though. I think it's a great question. And I feel like we should almost keep that for the podcast at some point to kind of have oh, as a recurring question. It's too hard. <laughs> Maybe it's too hard. But I think it's a really good thought experiment. And so, especially when you think about... You know, so it's easy to think about it in the first order. Like, it's just nice if people did something differently, but it's, yeah. it becomes more complex when you think about what are the consequences of that, right? And so I think that's why it makes for a really good question. And um, the the first, like, the <laughs> this is more a funny impulse, but the, the only, call it kryptonite that I have, is I have this weakness for people shooing loudly on, like, um, let's say ships or something. So like if I'm on a bus and someone behind me is eating a ships, like that's the, that's the <laughs> terrorizing experience for me. So, so if, if I could like reduce the likelihood of people like openly eating these kind of things with open mouths, that would be great. Uh, <laughs> not, I don't see a lot of negative consequences there, but yeah. 
I don't know. Would they be able to breathe as effectively? <laughs> yeah, I, no, probably, I would assume probably so. fine. Assume yeah. So. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was more of a funny thing that came to mind. I was just more of my head was like, I wish people stopped doing that. But um, to seriously answer the question, I think two things come to mind. So one would be, it would be interesting if you would change the dial when it came to better grasping long-term consequences. So what would happen if you gave people a better ability to more intuitively grasp what the behavior will do today, how that would lead them to feel in a week's or a month's or a year's time. Uh, so to more maybe in the moment also experience the feelings that they might have in a month's time or a year's time, or whatever it is, uh, or just thinking or contemplating the consequence on the generations ahead, for example. Mm -hmm. And and so Better affective forecasting essentially. Pretty much in some ways. And so I guess I'm, I'm assuming that would lead to helping take care of the planet better, for example. But I think we'll also probably be much more boring. So I guess <laughs> goodbye, goodbye to anything sponsored by Red Bull. You know, no, there will be no of those sports. But um, we will probably save the planet in the meantime. So maybe it's worth it. Um, possibly one. Another thing I was thinking about was just empathy as well. So what would happen if people were having a boost in empathy and so i don't see too many significant downsides to higher empathy i'm happen to be identified as a you know effective altruist which tries to look at okay how can we do good better in the world so not only by like what feels good but also what is most effective and so the people within that kind of um, movement like the peter singers of the world they might argue that so empathy causes like empathetic, what do you call, empathetic distress that you ca can become a barrier to action by, you know, you feel apathy, withdrawal, and feeling mm -hmm. a sense of helplessness from like feeling too much empathy. And I think that might be true, and maybe that's on the one spectrum that might be a problem if you would increase the dial as a whole. But I also think that you might solve some problems by having the likes of Trump and other historic leaders. Uh, hopefully acting a little differently with a little bit of boost in empathy. But yeah, I don't know. One would I'm, hope, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. What do you think? What do you think of those those things? Uh, I love it. And and I think that, you know, from what I understand about empathy is that we think that we have the capacity for empathy and it can actually put ourselves in other people's shoes. But it turns out that by and large, we're really, really terrible at, at actually doing that. And so right. by pretending that we are doing that, it actually backfires and, uh, and we don't realize that we're, that we're not actually able to do that and, uh, and see the other person's perspective. And so I think That's there right. are some That's scholars true. that argue like we should just back off of empathy and stop trying to get people to be more empathetic because they just can't. So I think that's a really yeah. good answer because, you know, in, in your world where we could, in your B sci-fi world where empathy were, <laughs> were, were increased, then maybe we could actually use that as a, as a strategy. Yeah. And uh, there will be no more wars, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm not willing to go that far. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Now, the time that we've all been waiting for, underrated, overrated. Uh, I'm going to give you some things. Uh, you're going to tell me if it's underrated or overrated and why. If you like, you don't have to tell me why, but I think it's, it's always more interesting. And uh, I, I tried to mix it up and, and not 
only serve you stereotypically Swedish things. So you're going to get some of them, (laughs) but it's not going to be all of them. It's going to be a mix of behavioral science and, for example, IKEA. (laughs) Go. I would say overrated. Uh, So two things. I would say it's overrated because people think the meatballs are really good. That's what I usually hear. And I'm like, you don't know about meatballs if you've had it at Ikea. So that's, that's why I think... <laughs> I thought it was the Lincoln Yeah, well, you need that too, right? You need that too. But um, that's the, the most common thing is people say they love Ikea because they love the meatballs and the food and that kind of stuff. And I'm like, mm, come to Sweden. And uh, and even actually... Yeah, you can, be, be, you can get better meatballs. That's for sure. But even at Ikea in Sweden is better than abroad, I've noticed. So when I've had, you know, Ikea food around the world... It's actually pretty bad compared to IKEA in Sweden. So maybe Swedish IKEA underrated. Swedish IKEA underrated, every other IKEA overrated. (laughs) All right. LinkedIn. Underrated. So um, (laughs) why? I think LinkedIn is just primed to create value. If you wanted to do something good, if you wanted to be a person who creates value in some ways, I feel like LinkedIn is the prime place because surprise, surprise, if you've ever been on LinkedIn, uh, most of the time people share things that are kind of either just not really interesting in terms of like, oh, I was in a conference, look at me, or I, I did this thing, look at me, I get a promotion, look at me. Like a lot of those kind of stuff where it's, it's a lot <laughs> about looking at me, look at me, what I've done, or join this thing that I want uh-huh. to join or whatever it is. And so if you're someone who wants to build a name in the field or someone who wants to just share their content somehow in a meaningful way or just build connections, I think LinkedIn is prime for that. It's like starving for good content. You're competing with, at you know, on Twitter, you're competing with the smartest people in the world of like writing smart things in a short format. That's quite hard. You have to be a pretty good witty <laughs> writer to actually do that. But on LinkedIn, you're competing with I don't know, like it's it's really terrible competition. <laughs> it's, it's like you're competing with some <laughs> some person who's telling uh, the world about, you know, again, a self at a conference or... Uh, yeah, the bar is, the bar is lower. much lower. So I think, and also for the purpose of, if you're a behavioral scientist, why not think about it as a behavioral science experiment? Like, you know that people care about basic stuff like a good photograph. And I don't understand when I see a behavioral scientist who has a really bad photograph, for example, that's like really bad quality and you can't really see the person because you should know if you're a behavioral scientist that that's going to be a very <laughs> important thing for you to kind of signal you know, who you are. And that kind yeah. of so I wish people who are in, in the behavioral science world would put on their behavioral science hat more engaging on LinkedIn, both in their own profile, but also sharing things. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think that something that you're personally very talented at that many behavioral scientists struggle with is this idea of implementation in general. And I think Habit Weekly is actually a really good example of this. So I think a lot of behavioral scientists can tell you, well, you have to make your communications really clear and fun and interesting uh, and so on. But then you see them putting out these long rambling articles or, you know, just you know, the things that are filled with jargon uh, and or products that have these really poor user interfaces. Uh, you don't really see their expertise translating into practice. Um, so I think that, yeah, that's one, if that, that should go into our like top 10 advice column or something, <laughs> like practice what you mm. preach, behavioral scientists. All right. 
This one, I'm going to try my very best to pronounce, and uh, forgive me if I butcher it. <laughs> Huga. This is funny, because you screwed up now, Aline. You made a mistake. I did. I did. It's not well, Huga. It's funny, because it's a Danish thing. No, it's no. Swedish. <laughs> it's Danish? <laughs> so, I, I wouldn't know, actually. I have no, I, I've heard that they do that in Denmark. But I honestly don't really know what it is. That's so funny. <laughs> um, yeah. That's really funny. The internet definitely thinks it's Swedish, by the way. I, yeah, maybe. But um, I've, I honestly never in my life ever heard well, the inter- of it. The internet also doesn't know the difference between Sweden and Switzerland. Exactly. So <laughs> I, shouldn't, I shouldn't have trusted it. I put too much faith. All right. Well, we're going to cut that one. <laughs> I don't know. This is be funny, actually. <laughs> Just kidding. It is pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Habits. <laughs> yeah, tough one. Yeah, very tough one. I feel very conflicted here. So um, it's funny because I've actually included that in many of the underrated, overrated interviews that I've had because I almost want people to say it is overrated because I am almost feeling that it's you know, becoming a little bit overrated in terms of what I think about when I see sometimes habits being used today is that it's this kind of panacea. It's this kind of solution for all things. And it almost is becoming in this category of like nudging and, and habits. It's kind of like, well, it's they've been often painted as these amazing things that does amazing things without much work. And it's kind of, just, you know, just... Uh, Magic. Magic. Yeah. Yeah. And (laughs) so I think habits, as it's kind of portrayed in the likes of power of habit, is very overrated. So this like quick Mm -hmm. self help thing, it's very overrated. But something to better understand for the purpose of changing behavior, still underrated. I think very few people actually understand much of the research on habits and and really have a good understanding of how how that works and i think especially going back to kind of how i started in the field i had these two phases where one was this phase of enlightenment with behavioral economics especially and then a phase of disillusionment with behavioral economics because i felt that in behavioral economics people didn't really talk about habits in that sense they didn't really know and think about what is necessary for long-term behavior to happen. It was mostly focused on what can we do to make one-time behaviors change, but very little insights into what is necessary to sustain these harder behavior change shifts, like getting people to actually not only eat differently because you rearrange some food in the cafeteria, but change their maybe overall diet as a whole or to exercise more or to, you know, all of the things, climate change as well, right? So yeah, I think in that way on Reddit to really understand the science behind it. All right. Free will. Okay. Free will. Is this supposed to be a quick fire round? I realized <laughs> I'm doing a terrible job. <laughs> They're never really that no, quick. I'm doing a terrible job here. <laughs> I think it's overrated because that people, I think in general, have this over over belief in free will yeah i think it's important i think it's important to have an illusion of free will 
but um, to really think that you you are the master of the universe or like to really think that you have as much control as maybe you want to is is probably overrated. Um, how about memes? Memes are underrated, I would say. And um, I've talking about successes before in terms of maybe some of the things I've done in, in my career will have a weekly sustaining that. A failure was my commitment to produce a behavioral science meme during the month of um, every day during the month of November. I developed seven or eight memes. So I completely failed uh, on on that commitment. Wow, that was, that was a pretty ambitious goal, though. I know, I know, it was, it was ill-advised, but um, I thought it'd be fun, and um, I did do it because I think it kind of can poke fun at some of the things we don't really talk about as much as we should, and so it's kind of this nice way of making it easily accessible and fun. Um, all the stuff we we maybe should spend more time thinking about. So. Underrated? Great. Okay, last underrated, overrated. This is a, a my own invention. It's a free response question. Um, <laughs> and the question is, who are the most underrated behavioral scientists? And and same for overrated. Who are the most overrated behavioral scientists? Wow. <laughs> Putting me on the spot. Well, the easy answer would be obviously you being uh, the most underrated behavioral scientist of them all. <laughs> but it would probably be quite corrupt if I only say your name. So you actually had a list that we can include in the show notes where you listed 10 behavioral scientists to know. And I would have, you know, pretty much, like for me, it would be anyone on that list. I feel like that was a great list of people that are doing great things in the field. But are still maybe not getting the recognition they deserve. So, so that's a big cop out of my on my end because <laughs> I'm not <laughs> saying I'm not saying a name here. How about overrated? Oh, overrated. So I can easily say someone who has like had their studies fail to replicate, I guess. But um, I think a lot of the people that have done. The TED Talks are quite overrated, almost by definition of that. So you have the obvious ones uh, with power posing and the likes, which, um, yeah, yeah, I think it's in general quite ill-advised to make a TED Talk on a behavioral science concept when it's in its infancy. Uh, It makes sense from a PR perspective of of getting a book to sell or or getting your name out there. But given there's still Mm -hmm. so much we don't know, I feel like... It's it's quite tricky when you're bringing something new to the field and then having a TED Talk, knowing that that will reach a lot of people that have no knowledge of behavioral science usually, and you're representing behavioral science in doing so. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. And I, I feel like there's a really delicate balance too between getting out there and sharing your work, which is really mm-hmm. important, and but you know not actually overstating what the research suggests and and going into that sketchy territory of uh, of making too many claims claims that are too strong yeah all right one very last question um how do you apply behavioral science in your own life or do you no i hate to practice <laughs> the way i preach <laughs> so yeah honestly where to begin so obviously some of the stuff that my people probably know is that i wrote this article about how I read 125 books in a year. I'm not saying that's the greatest thing to do, 
that was more of what if I put all of the tools I had in my behavioral science toolkit onto reading books and just seeing how far I would come with that. I actually, the goal that year was to read around 100 books because I read about 53 the year before um, to see if like, would it be enjoyable and interesting and, and intellectually stimulating to read X amount of books? And I ended up pretty much reading 125 books because I just had that good of habits in place. I feel like talking about habits, Amazing. that was definitely thanks to, yeah. to good habits in place. Uh, then I would say it's over, overrated to read that many books in a year. You should not try to do that. That's not a stupid thing to do in hindsight. Because <laughs> I feel like it defeats the purpose of wanting to retain information and, and build knowledge and, and use that in action and so on. So I think that's an example of how I apply it to my own life in general, I think today what I usually think about is just optimizing enjoyment for all the things that I'm supposed to do. And so I very regularly tension bundle in different ways. For example, when it comes to gym. So it's a weird time, but actually since June, we've been able to go to the gym in Sweden. And so I was facing this challenge of trying to build my gym habit up again. And what worked really well for me this time, better than any time before, is paying a premium for a little bit nicer gym. Uh, it was a little. I actually did it to avoid kind of feeling too claustrophobic with COVID thing happening. Yeah. So I wanted to have mm -hmm. a gym that was like secure to be clean and not so many people in and that kind of stuff. And so I paid a little bit premium. Actually, not that big of a difference in, in the scheme of things. But having experience where I go and I don't feel like I'm completely surrounded by sweaty people and. And so all of a sudden, I actually started to enjoy going to the gym. And then for my cardio sessions, I have this temptation bundle where I watch all the guilt-free guilt shows of like <laughs> the things that probably... <laughs> Which one? So randomly, <laughs> actually, just finished American Barbecue Showdown. Uh, oh, interesting. <laughs> I wouldn't have pegged you as I'm, an American Barbecue Showdown. I'm a 95% showdown. vegan, which is also funny with this. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to, I don't know, I usually would never watch kind of a game show, but I ended up watching this and then you stuck to the wholesomeness. Like it was just a very wholesome and, and good, uh, you know, this show. And so, um, yeah, I ended up watching that. We can definitely use some more wholesome this year. I know, right? So, um, so yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say there is just that it's easy to focus on, for example, what is the most ideal or effective way to do things or... When thinking about behaviors, or is to think about, okay, I'm going to get activated or cued to behave. I'm going to, you know, have a reward or whatever people say. But a lot of times people forget just optimizing the enjoyment of doing the behavior itself. And so that's usually, I think, the most effective thing for me in, in, in my private life or personal life. Awesome. Well, it has been an absolute joy chatting. I could probably talk to you for another 10 hours if I didn't have other things to do today. <laughs> I wish I could. Thanks for, for going along with my ploy to, to put you in the hot seat. And uh, I'll give you an A+. Plus. Uh, great, great job. Yes. <laughs> we, we did it. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to all the other interviews that we're going to do in the future. Yeah, I was just going to say the good news is that we have a lot of hours ahead of us in terms of we're going to have some true. fun conversations on data science. So um, let's keep it going. To read us out. Thanks for listening to the Behavioral Design Podcast from Habit Weekly and the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University. The song used in this episode and will be used in future episode is Murgatroyd by the wonderful David Pissarro. 
And thanks also to the team at Orange Wall Media for the production of this episode. Make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to podcasts. If you like what we're cooking here at the show, share it with a friend or a colleague. And uh, thanks again for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with another deep dive into all things behavioral design. Heavens to Murgatroyd. Do, 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 Oh, do, 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 do,